Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios and on Pod TV Live, it's another all-new Dueling Decades. The adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back. I am Mark James, and this week we dive into an awesome August duel. I'll be competing with the best of August 1984 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, representing the 90s is a man who is still waiting for monkeys to fly out of his butt. Say hello to Man Crush. Thank you, Mark. I feel like we've done this before, and I will say uh, thank you for bringing up Pod TV. And I don't have to do that this week, but I will say that we have been skipping weeks. Uh, and one of the things we never do with our audience is we never tell you what the hell we're doing. <laughs> so we are kind of doing a biweekly thing right now where uh, everyone's kind of busy. We got vacations going on and stuff. So if you notice, we missed a week here and there. That's why. But we're still check us out on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. We are on there every day. So you can see that. But yeah, August of 94 is what I have. Also returning to the show and slipping back to the 70s is the media king of the North. Please welcome back Joe Finley. Oh, hello, my babies. Oh, I'm getting applause. That's the first time that's ever happened on this. <laughs> all right. Huzzah. Um, yeah. So now I'm all full of uh, confidence and I'm taking on uh, August of 1974. Always a uh, daunting task. So let's get her done. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. This week's guest judges are from the high-octane rock band Moon Fever, whose new track, Single All Summer, is available now on all streaming platforms. All rise and welcome vocalist Cody Jasper and guitarist Mitch McCauley. Woo! What's up? Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming, man. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final wild card round. Remember, duelers, to review the show. Like, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more Dueling Decades. All right, let's go right down to our guest judges from Moon Fever for the coin toss. What do you What do you got? What do you got? Was that a nickel? It's a nickel. nickel. Yeah, it's a it's nickel. Not- it's not double-sided or anything, right? It's, it's, it's legitimate. Yeah, on, sure. well, well, make sure. We want to show this is a real deal. Yes, so. All right, Joe, yeah, call it. All right. Tinder. Tails in the air. Just 
This is goddamn humiliating. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, you win the coin toss. That means you get to select our first category. All right. You know what? Let's start with news. Always the greatest category to start an episode with. I'll try to keep it light with this one. So uh, news, August of 94, filled with a bunch of downers. And I didn't want to go that route. So instead, I brought uh, a news story to show you just how the other side lives. Wonder no more what big stars do when they're filming on location, because I'm about to fill you in in this article from August 10th, 1994. And the title of this article is Sly's Hotel Bill. Whenever we stay at a hotel, we're thrilled with a giveaway sewing kit, disposable shower cap, and wrapped up two-inch bar of cashmere bouquet. If they have a disposable razor on the counter, we're practically insane with happiness. But some movie stars, like rich people everywhere, not only never get around to using the shower caps, they sometimes don't even use the furniture. Take Sylvester Stallone, for example, the man who created a life of Rocky and rundown gyms in a crummy apartment, won't even use the free drapes and carpeting that came with his suite at the ritzy Carlton Tower in London's Knightbridge section. Yes, the action film star who's shooting the long-discussed British big-screen caper Judge Dredd in London needs, needs to feel like he's at home, away from home. Sources tell us Stallone, who's staying at the hotel for the entire shoot, has hired designers to change the room's drapes and carpeting and have several pieces of furniture removed. He's also had some of the walls covered with wallpaper and had several of his own paintings flown in to spruce up the place. Now, just think about that. This guy lives in Florida. He flew these paintings from Florida to fucking London. All right. The cost believed somewhere between $140,000 and $160,000 was all picked up by Stallone. No word on whether he'll bring the nearly naked full life statue of himself and Brigitte Nielsen, which he commissioned during their marriage for that extra touch of class. So I give you Sly's hotel bill from August 10th, 1994. Wow. That's uh, ridiculous. Is that how you guys roll on the road? Do you like, you have stuff sent out? Um, yeah, man. Uh, no. Socks. <laughs> socks. Send yeah. Socks, man. socks and socks. some underwear would be great. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, we get bottles of water from the clubs. We do. Bottles of beer. Okay, occasional cases of beer. Yeah. Nice. So you guys, you guys roll high. Do you actually use <laughs> the uh, the disposable razor that they leave you on the counter? I've never seen a disposable I've razor. Never seen I, one. No. I yeah. haven't either. This is a dated art. It's nineteen ninety four. I guess back then they did that. Cut back. I don't but think I've ever seen a razor. razor blade, my it would have came in handy would, a couple times. Yeah, so. I know. That would lit. Yeah, where are those at? Let's bring those back, dude. But they're only <laughs> single blades. Q tips. Yeah, and Q tips and laundry services. Let's bring it all back. We need all of it. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking nineties. Bring it back. All right, Mark. All right, Joe Finley. What did you bring for the news round? All right. Well, I got a pretty interesting one for you. That's not a downer. You guys are always on me for that, but I found a pretty fun one. Uh, August 7th, 1974, a French performer, Philippe, uh, Philippe Petit, uh, was in New York City and only one week from his 25th birthday walked on a tightrope between the twin towers. Uh, the French born acrobat spent six years planning this walk. He was 18 years old when he came up with the idea for this thing. Uh, and he actually went and practiced on other famous structures. He walked between the two towers of the Notre Dame de Paris. He walked across the two pylons of the Sydney Harbor Bridge. Uh, he, you know, got himself into a lot of trouble with this, but, uh, he had his little gang of cohorts. And essentially, uh, the rest of this story kind of comes off like an Ocean's Eleven movie. These guys cased the World Trade Center. So, I mean, FBI 
just chill. I'm cool right now. Uh, they were casing the World Trade Center for weeks and weeks, watching what all the maintenance workers wore, what all the blue collar people wore and stuff like that. So they could dress up like those, pass off as them and constantly break in to the building. Over and over and over again to get the information that they needed. Uh, Philippe Petit, they, uh, they went in as, uh, maintenance workers up the elevator shafts and stuff like that. Uh, he actually even went as a reporter one time and interviewed people on the roof. So he had access to the roof to see what that was like. Um, the night before he got in with his gang, uh, and they went up with all the equipment necessary and using a bow and arrow, they shot the, they shot a rope across from one tower to the other and they pulled up the 400 pound steel cable and attached it in place and at seven o'clock in the morning he began a 45 minute performance on the tightrope with for onlookers this is obviously not advertised because it's not legal and i uh, people just you know showing up for work that day and just walking down the street all of a sudden just look up and see a man walking across the tightrope. He crossed between the two buildings eight times. He laid down on the tightrope and knelt down and gave a salute to his fans. Um, police, uh, uh, Port Authority police uh, were trying on both buildings to get him to come down and finally threatened to actually pluck him off of the tightrope with a helicopter. Uh, so he eventually got off only because it started raining uh, obviously arrested on the spot as he went, but then uh, because uh, the uh, PR for it ended up being so good, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey gave him an unlimited like lifetime pass to the observation deck of the Twin Towers, and he even has he had his autograph on uh, one of the uh, one of the pillars up there, uh, and. He didn't spend any time in jail. All he had to do uh, was they didn't press charges on condition that he did a free uh, show for kids in Central Park. So this crazy story, uh, the movie actually or the uh, whole incident got made into two different documentaries. One of them won an Oscar for Best Documentary. It was also made into the Robert Zemeckis film The Walk starring uh, Jessica Gordon-Levitt. So, I mean, it's... It was a big thing that happened, and actually they even said it helped raise the PR of the Twin Towers themselves, which actually were called ugly by a lot of critics, and they still hadn't sold uh, sold off all of the uh, office space in the buildings yet at that point. They had afterwards. So, you know, what turns goes from a heist to a pretty good news story is uh, Philippe, Philippe Petit crossing the Twin Towers on August 7th, 1974. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that was pretty... I love that movie. I saw that movie a long time ago. Yeah. I think I saw that movie in school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So for my news story, we're going to head over to the Fort Lauderdale News, August 11th, 1984. This is going to be good. It's already my <laughs> White House officials kept a stony silence towards widespread reports that President Reagan had joked into a microphone Saturday that the United States would start to bomb the Soviet Union in five minutes. The Gannett News Service, CBS Radio, and other news outlets all reported that Reagan had made a joke while testing a microphone in preparation for his regular weekly radio address. Reagan was quoted in the CBS report as saying in a clearly joking tone, my fellow Americans, I am pleased to announce I just signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. 
It was known that CBS and the cable news network that recorded the remark at the time was was made. Neither outlet played the words on air Sunday when it was reported. A White House spokesperson told a reporter who learned of the joke on Saturday that anything the president said before his radio address was off the record and they declined to comment more. But another spokesperson commented saying any comment that the president would make in advance of his radio address would be off the record and we don't discuss it. However, it is unlikely that the matter would be quickly forgotten since the low state of relations between Moscow and Washington. The Soviet Union declined to comment on today's remarks. And, well, just as predicted in the article, this was not quickly forgotten. And by August 14th, the event had become a major news event in Moscow. And the joke was not treated as a laughing matter. On August 15th, a coded message was sent from Soviet military headquarters, and it said in part, we now embark on military action against U.S. forces. The coded message was quickly deciphered by the Japanese and the United States intelligence, and upon hearing the message, a very confused Soviet naval unit off the coast of Alaska radioed back to headquarters to confirm what they had said, and at the same time, the Japanese army readied their military. Come to find out, it was all just a wayward Soviet radio operator who sent out the message as a joke in response to Reagan's joke. And some people said that he was probably even most likely drunk. So the alert was canceled 30 minutes after and everyone stood down. So I give you the time that we almost went to war over a joke in August of 1984. I like that one a lot. So, okay, so here's my deal. I need to give my point, at least I do to you because my uncle probably wasn't a totally a spy for America during that time period. He definitely wasn't. (laughs) He definitely was not. Definitely not stationed in West Berlin. Don't worry about it. I'm giving my point to you. Wow. Wow. But he wasn't for sure. He definitely doesn't know Russian. Definitely didn't work on any of those uh, uh, telecommunications. So don't worry about it. (laughs) So that's where we're going. Are you guys... You guys have to make one decision, so you might have to fight this one out. Okay, okay. All right, sorry, wow. sorry, sorry. Um, Bingo. You can tell I, World liked, Trade. I like the World Trade Center. I like World Trade Center, too, though. Deep down is where my heart is. Yeah. It took me back to like high school watching yeah. it. And that was a, yeah, it's a good, it's good, a good story. story. It's a great story. It comes up from nothing. It felt good. He did something illegal. It's lit. And he got away with it. So yeah. I'm there. Okay, we're going that way. Yeah. Done. Oh, it's done. Oh, All right. Suede. I'm glad because I said so many words there and I really, really didn't want to uh, have that have been for nothing. <laughs> if you were going to go Reagan started talking about aliens or something, I was all in. But Reagan <laughs> yes. just joking about war. I just try to keep getting my uncle to tell me he's a spy. He won't yeah. tell me, but I believe you. I think he was. Why don't we call so him? I'm, like, I'm just going to keep saying it until maybe, you know, lets me know. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, why, don't, Friendly, why don't we buzz him right now? Let's uh, let's get to the bottom of this. Yeah. Give him a ring. <laughs> <laughs> just say, hey, look, we need to know. Were you know. or were you not? This is a good time to plug spy. our new single, single all summer yeah. that comes out video tomorrow, tomorrow. Uh, yeah today, today. Maybe. Today. it might be today depends on when we air when, when this airs yes this but true. Uh, single summer check it out 
Plug it in. It's your new favorite have, song. You're gonna love it. My God, you can stream it everywhere. My they have God. figured it out. They figured out how to judge these rounds. All right, Mark. <laughs> judge and plug, baby. Right, judge Joe, and plug, baby. Plug. <laughs> All right, Joe Finley, you pick up our first point. You take control of the board. Where are we going, man? All right, you know what? I think we're gonna go to the movies round. All right. Okay, so. I'm going to take you to August 21st, 1974. Uh, it's a movie that we've seen uh, remakes of uh, in fairly recent history. Uh, and it stars the man. If you're going to do the 70s, you want somebody with a mustache. So I got the best somebody with the mustache. I got Burt fucking Reynolds. And with the New York, with the New York release of The Longest Yard. So uh, the movie stars Burt Reynolds, Eddie Albert, Ed Lauder, Bernadette Peters, uh, James Hampton, who you might know as the dad from Teen Wolf, uh, Richard Keel, who you might know as Jaws from a couple of 007 movies or uh, from Billy Madison, and a bunch of uh, NFL players, including Ray Nitschke, uh, Ernie, Re- 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 Ernie Wheelwright, and Joe Cap, uh, among a bunch of others. Uh, it's about a former NFL player, Paul Wrecking Crew, whose uh, career, you know, ended on a bad note when people thought he was shaving points. Uh, goes into a bit of a downward spiral, steals his girlfriend's luxury car, gets arrested, sentenced to 18 months in prison. What? <laughs> and then he ends up uh, leading a team of prisoners to go against the semi-pro team made up of the prison guards and you know, football ensues, as it were. Uh, it was produced by Albert S. Ruddy, who uh, was known for producing Godfather, Million Dollar Baby, a bunch of others. He's Canadian, too, just a thing. Um, just for me. Uh, it received an Oscar nomination for Best Editing, one Golden Globe for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy. Burt Reynolds was nominated for Best Actor uh, it, for the Golden Globes as well. And James Hampton, our Teen Wolf friend, uh, was nominated for Best uh, Promising or Most Promising Newcomer, which was the thing back then. Uh, the movie uh, sparked three remakes uh, in 2001, Mean Machine uh, in the UK, starring Vinnie Jones. Uh, 2005, The Longest Yard with Adam Sandler, uh, which, you know, is obviously of these three, probably the ones people will know the most. And then uh, in 2015, Captain Masser in Egypt, uh, the two international ones, both the UK and the Egyptian one, were both, they changed the sport to soccer for obvious reasons. Uh, but yeah, that's what I've got. August 21st, 1974, The Longest Yard. Well, if they change it to soccer, that's almost more like the movie Victory. Yeah. With, right. uh, with Stallone. Absolutely. They, they done fucked up. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'm going to sue Egypt tomorrow. Do you let but... them know. <laughs> Get All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the movies round? All right, so let's go to August 5th of 1994. And as I've mentioned before on the show, you could find this daily on our Facebook. Every day we post at 1130 Eastern Standard Time all the movies that were released from the 80s and the 90s. So when I did this one on August 5th, all I wanted to do all day long was watch this movie. I posted it. I saw the movie. I was like, I have to watch this. And all day long, I was at the fucking studio till like 11 o'clock that night. <laughs> and I'm texting Mike Ranger like, dude, I just want to get home and watch this movie. I finally got to watch it. Uh, one of my favorite comedies in the 90s. Yet I always felt that this movie right here was based more on an 80s band than a 90s band. But, you know, in the end, it doesn't really matter. But it's also shocking. This, this movie t- just turned 27 years old, which is fucking insane because i remember going to see that in the movies i remember where i sat at that movie because there weren't that many people in the theater 
and I couldn't even tell you what I ate for breakfast this morning, but I can remember that. And that show was 27 years ago, so my brain is still functioning. Uh, anyway, this movie, it only brought in $6 million at the box office. It's about $11 million in 2021, which is shocking. Once again, it would appear that this is one of those movies that it really caught on once it hit the video store and cable. But just getting back to the initial box office total, I am shocked that this movie did so shitty. But at the same time, I know why. And it wasn't the cast. You had Adam Sandler. You had Steve Buscemi, Brendan Fraser. It wasn't the story. And it definitely wasn't the soundtrack. It was the asshole critics. And I'm going to give you a little taste of three asshole critics that I, I ran across while I was doing research for this. First one, it says, uh, comedy is almost entirely humorless. A title like Airheads suggests that at least there's something inside the mind of this painfully empty comedy wrong. On the other hand, there is some truth in its advertising. You have to be an airhead to like airheads. It's as simple as that. Next one is from uh, some dick named Steve Persall. He says, uh, airheads is a rock and roll radio comedy in which laughs come at a very low frequency. Director Michael Lehman, still riding the reputation of his wickedly funny fluke, Heathers, obviously wishes to make Dog Day Afternoon for Beavis and Butthead's generation. With a trio of vapid, heavy metal musicians taking over a radio station, the result is a mangy mutt of a movie. A spinal tap wannabe at times, and as painful to watch as that band's medical namesake. And the last one I got here, not since the House of Spirits has so much talent been put to so little use. Nobody comes off well. Blame first-time screenwriter Rich Wilkes and director Michael Lehman, who also made the uneven but ambitious satire Heathers and the disastrous Hudson Hawk. Airheads more closely resembles the latter. You'd be better off staying home for a WKRP in Cincinnati rerun, is what they said. <laughs> but listen, obviously these people are morons. If you've never seen Airheads, go ahead and check it out. White Zombie, Uzi Water Guns, Giant Baby Bottles, Naked Pictures of B. Arthur, and illicit pool boy named Pip, douchebag record executive, stupid band names, Nakatomi Plaza, and fucking Lemmy. I mean, whether you've seen it or not, go see Airheads. August 5th, 1994. Yeah, that was a good pitch. Good pitch. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. My movie's pick this week was a staple of my youth. It seemed like it was on TV constantly, and I think it was on every time I turned on either the cable, satellite dish, and I watched it every single time. It's one of the first movies I knew line for line, I think. You know, and it's a movie that taught me many things as well. Like it taught me the best place to hide a radio was inside an aluminum bread pan. And you can actually piss in your radiator if you ever run out of water. And the harsh reality and futility of war, which was the director John Milius's whole point. It's the dawn of World War III. And in the West Mountains of America, a group of teenagers band together to defend their town, their country, from invading Soviet forces in Red Dawn, released August 10th, 1984, the exact same week as President Reagan's address and his little quip. I'm, I'm starting to see a theme. Yeah, yeah. Picks. Kind of odd there. <laughs> <laughs> so the movie included an all-star cast of Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, Dal Darren Dalton, Jennifer Grey, Leah Thompson, Powers Booth, a moving performance from the great Harry Dean Stanton, and last but not least... The film featured debut of Charlie Sheen. Now, Red Dawn was the first feature film with a PG-13 rating, mainly due to the true-to-life violence portrayed in the film. The movie used no special effects, 
no green screens or miniatures. Milius actually made the movie as real as possible, using full-scale explosions and filming in net in minus 30-degree temperatures, which left Swayze with a touch of frostbite and probably caused Charlie Sheen's thirst for tiger's blood. So the film grossed about $38 million worldwide off a $17 million budget which is $44 million in 2021 today, kids. And I can't imagine anyone doing a movie of this scale using practical effects for $44 million bucks. In comparison, 2015's Mad Max Fury Road used 80% practical effects, but that movie cost $150 million. So, like we always say on this show, that this is a movie that found its audience once it hit the, re- the rental shelves and cable TV. And that's when it became a cult classic and one of my favorite movies from the 80s. So right now I got a few words for some of our brothers and sisters in the occupied zone. The chair is against the wall. The chair is against the wall. John has a long mustache. John has a long mustache. It's 12 o'clock duelers and another round closer to victory. I give you Red Dawn, August 10th, 1984. Also good pitch. Good pitch. Also a good one. All right, let's throw it over to Cody and Mitch for the verdict on the movies round. So yeah, I gotta go with Man Crush. We gotta go with Man. Crush. We gotta go Man Crush on it. Super Shammy, bro. <laughs> such a good fucking movie. Can you believe they had such shit reviews? Like I never realized that. No, but that's also why we had to go with it. Like fuck those guys. <laughs> <laughs> Like I can't believe they were right. It's a spite that. point, dude. We had to give you. A, we had to give them a spite point. You know what yes, I mean? Yes, absolutely. I can't. I can't fathom that that movie only made six million bucks because you know it probably costs like, over, at least over ten to make that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. Fucking trash. I want to watch that now. Yeah. I'm gonna, yes. I'm after this, dude. I'm telling. you, Like I. I actually. Uh, I own that one, but it's not streaming anywhere, so you might have to rent it. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Amazon rental. Got it. Yep. <laughs> they get you anyway. Technology, baby. Speaking of that, you can uh, stream our sequel and all of our other songs right now, too. We're it's called on, Moon Fever. And Check on Spotify. It out. And, Spotify. And, <laughs> and on YouTube. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, with your videos, and uh, Mark was talking about the practical effects and stuff, do you guys do any of that stuff? Because your videos are actually pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we did do fake fire. We did do fake fire because we were too. We were worried. We were scared about burning down. We also were driving a '56 Ford Thunderbird, so we didn't want them to really set it on fire. Yeah, that would. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man, Crusher. Well, you picked up a point in that round. You tie up this game, but more importantly, you take control of the board. What category are we going with next, man? Oh man, let's go. uh, (laughs) Let's go hot products for round three. Maybe or maybe not. All right, so uh, so let's go August first, nineteen ninety four. There's a there's a bit to unpack with this one, so I, I'm not going to be coy. Uh, we're going to look at a comic book that was released on August first, nineteen ninety four. In that particular comic book, The Incredible Hulk, issue number four twenty. What do you think <laughs> that they tackle on The Incredible Hulk, issue number four twenty? I know what I hope they tackle in issue number four twenty. Of the Incredible Hulk, but what, please, what do you think it is? Please, please tell me I'm right that it has something to do with uh, the Incredible Hulk rolling up a big green fatty. 
No, you're wrong. It's Damn not it. weed. It's AIDS. You're way off. Oh, wow. Jesus. Wow. Fucking way off. Thank uh, you. <laughs> but in all, in all seriousness, this is <laughs> this is one of those issues where you can appreciate comics for like having the depth to bring real world problems into the, one of their own issues and just deliver a side of humanity that you wouldn't normally see otherwise. Now, this was done in 1994, which is a few years after the whole uh, Ryan White situation. But th- I mean, the storyline, it definitely plays into this issue. If you got, do you guys remember this? If you don't recall, like Ryan White was a teenager. Uh, he was living with AIDS. He got it through blood transfusion. I think it was around like 85 or 86. And uh, the doctors told him it was safe for him to go back to school. He wasn't going to transmit it to anybody else. But all the people in his hometown, like they really didn't know much about AIDS at the time. And they boycotted him going back to school. And then he went through like a long legal battle and he eventually goes back to school. He's eventually, I think, I don't think he graduated. I think he ended up dying right before his graduation in 1990. Very dark. Yeah, it is very dark. But this issue it begins with the Incredible Hulk's friend Jim Wilson outside of school during that exact same type of protest. So this is basically like a strip from the headlines. They waited a couple of years and they put this one together. Long story short, Jim Wilson, I was just talking about, is a friend of the Hulk's. He's dying of AIDS. And uh, Bruce Banner, he finds out and he's left with a, a gigantic moral dilemma because Bruce has figured it out that he could save Jim by trans, like transfusing his Hulk blood into Jim. However, the last time that Bruce did this for somebody, he gave a blood transfusion to his cousin Jennifer and she became She-Hulk. So Bruce is torn between creating another monster where he doesn't know if he's going to be good or bad or watching his friend just succumb to AIDS and die. So what does Hulk do, Mark? He gets high. (laughs) (laughs) He should have. Because what he ultimately does is he fucking lies to Jim about giving him a blood transfusion. They pump Jim full of like non-Hulk blood and he dies. Oh, but before he, he placebos he, him. He did. He he really did. But before he died, oh. uh, like Jim figures it all out that it's a ruse and he's okay with it. He he knows that, you know, it was a big decision. But you know, thinking about this, like, what the fuck? The Hulk could have eradicated AIDS. Right. Sorry, man. Do not trust the Hulk. Dude, it's fucked up. Total dick move, in my opinion. Plus, I'm pretty sure that Jim Wilson, who is who was in a lot of Hulk issues as his friend, like earlier, like early 80s, late 70s, is related to Falcon. So how's that going to go when he goes back to the Avengers like fucking building and shit? Sorry, dude, about your cousin. Could have saved him, but I decided not to. Yeah, that's going to be a little awkward. Fucking dick. And then uh, to keep this one really down, <laughs> like in, there was a side story, a little less important, but there was another guy who has HIV and he parks his car on train tracks and he's talking to uh, Betty Banner, Bruce's wife, and she's trying to talk him out of it. And he tells her he's parked on the train tracks and she said, okay, if that's what you're going to do, but before you know the train hits you, at least tell me the name of your girlfriend so I can let her know that she might be positive also. And the train hits him before he tells her and he dies. Oh, so my they, God. they never complete that. But it's the Incredible Hulk issue number 420. Great, great read. Uh, it's a, Seriously, it's a classic. Wizard Magazine, they do all this comic stuff. They listed this issue as number 26 of the 100 best single issue comics 
that have been released since you've been born. So you got that. But it's August 1st, 1994. And I hope Mitch has a good drink there. What is that? Oh, I'm <laughs> drinking uh, lemon water. Oh, come on. Ah, that's just. <laughs> I thought it was going to be yeah, something yeah, really yeah, good. Tonic. Yeah. <laughs> Bombay <laughs> Sapphire. Got to take care of the instrument. You're definitely not getting the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to talk you would, into it. My version would have been so much better, man. <laughs> all right joe finley what did you bring for the hot products round well as luck would have it i also brought a comic book uh less aids but a equally dickish friend going on <laughs> uh the august 1974 issue of amazing spider-man number 135 it marks the second ever full appearance of the punisher the first appearance being in amazing spider-man 129 uh he didn't get his own comic for about another month or so I think it was, uh, but he appears there and helps him uh, take on Tarantula, which is his first uh, appearance. Anybody who doesn't know him, he's a uh, South American uh, super, as it were, who was actually trying to become South America's Captain America, and he loved violence a little bit too much, so he fled to the U.S., becomes a bad guy there. Uh, and that's not the biggest part of this whole issue though that's something that happened throughout the issue but the biggest thing that happened is harry osborne uh peter's dear friend who has already covered up for the death of his father when he find out that he was the green goblin and spider-man killed him discovers peter parker's spider-man suit in his house and realizes that peter is spider-man the man who killed his father dick friend <laughs> So the issue ends with Harry Osborn going to the place where his father died, locating the Green Goblin's big flying device, vowing to get revenge on Peter. So it's it rebirths a, a new bad guy, one of the biggest in the Spider-Man lore. Uh, it's a huge kind of discovery, one of the first of its uh, kind for Spider-Man anyways. And according to GoCollect.com, a copy graded at 9.8 is currently worth $3,000. So it is a uh, it is a hefty one for the comic book world. So yeah, I give you Amazing Spider-Man number 135. Well, if you want to pick up uh, my copy, uh, it's on eBay for 10 bucks. So anybody can <laughs> go and buy that. All right, guys. Well, you know, I did not bring a comic book this week, so sorry Ooh. to disappoint, but we got a band here, so I thought we'd go pick up some concert tickets for our hot product this week. So in an article in the New York Times dated August 7th, 1984, it reads, With all the excitement swirling around about the Jacksons, the Jacksons had just finished this huge concert in New York City, let us not forget about Bruce Springsteen. He did have a number one album this summer, after all, with Born in the USA, Indies and he's playing to more ticket buyers in the New York area than the Jacksons or anyone else had ever done in a single engagement, 202,000 of them to be exact, in 10 long-since-sold-out concerts at the Brendan Byrne Arena in the Meadowlands of his native New Jersey. The first of those concerts was Sunday night, and they continue in pairs with rest days in between through August 20th. Now, it was from these shows that the live album Brendan Byrne Arena, New Jersey, 1984, was recorded. That was recorded on August 5th, 1984. The final show of that run was uh, was actually dubbed The Last Great Show. That show featured the Miami Horns on 10th Avenue Freeze Out and Drift Away and also featured another surprise guest, little Steven Van Zandt, Springteen's former guitarist, 
and his closest confidant. This was actually his first appearance with the E Street Band since his departure from the band a year earlier. So I give you the hottest ticket in town, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, live in concert, August of 1984. I miss the Brendan Byrne, Izod Center. Yeah, I saw Iron Maiden there. I saw Pearl Jam there. It's a great place. Now it's a shithole, but it was a great place. (laughs) All right, let's kick it down to Mitch and Cody from Moon Fever for the verdict on the Hut Products round. We're going with the boy Matt here. Yeah, we're uh, we're giving yeah Bruce. Yeah, gotta give it to Bruce. <laughs> All yeah. right. All right. You guys ever see Bruce in concert? Is that why you picked it? No, I have not. But I've always really uh, I like Stevie's Underground Garage. We listen to that a lot on the yeah. road. Yeah. Like we listen to that a shit ton on the road. And also, he was great as still in Soprano. So I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's like, a lot of people on, that don't like, even realize he plays. They just think he's Silvio. Right. They're like, oh, yeah. Silvio's up there. It's like, yeah, Silvio. Silvio, yeah. Oh, Silvio plays guitar for Bruce Springsteen, dude. Everyone knows it. <laughs> he's not running the bang. He's up there with Bruce, dude. You know? He just throws on that uh, that bandana as a changed person. It's like yep. witness protection. Yeah. All right. Well, this game's all tied up, and we're heading into our first two-point round. I have control of the board. Uh, you know what, gentlemen? Let's go to the television round. All right. Well, same word. Let's do it. So if you happen to be watching the latest episode of Maple Leaf Wrestling on August 29th, 1984, you would have seen a tag team match that marked the WWF television debut of a wrestler who would become one of its most decorated champions. He'd also become the face of the company, a Hall of Famer, and at the center of one of the industry's biggest controversy. Uh, This second-generation wrestler is a five-times WWE champion, two-time WWE Intercontinental champion, two-time WCW World Heavyweight champion, four-time WCW United States champion, and two-time WWF Tag Team champion. He was also ranked number one on the PWI 500 list, as well as a five-time Wrestler of the Year Award winner and Most Hated Wrestler of the Year Award winner. Now, if you guys have not guessed it by now, he's a man who's had a lot of, let's say, sunny days. He's the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. I give you the debut of Bret Hart. Uh, Though he actually was victorious in his first WWF match, Bret Hart said that the performance was actually pretty poor and that Vince McMahon was left unimpressed with what he saw. Bret was actually quoted about saying about about his debut that they put me in a tag match with Dynamite Kid. And I had been off for about six months before my knee got operated on. And they told me not to worry much, just to go out there, get my face on TV. My timing was all off. I was kind of messed up. And I kind of messed up something in the ending of the match. But nobody really noticed. But when I came back to the dressing room, Vince McMahon couldn't wait to shake Dynamite Kid's hand and praise him, slap him on the back, tell him how the match was beautiful stuff. And I remember when I walked in, he didn't even look at me. I I think I failed my audition. Uh, Bret Hart has actually come up a few times here on the show now. We've talked about the Montreal Screwjob a few times, his great matches he had with Shawn Michaels, his late brother Owen, and Stone Cold Steve Austin. You know, just watching any of those matches actually explains why he earned the moniker The Excellence of Execution. So I give you the debut of Bret Hart for the WWF, August 29th, 1984. All right, all right. 
Good, good one, good one. All right, Joe Finley, what did you bring for the television round? I uh, brought a pretty big one today with me. Uh, it's technically, uh, it's it's world news, but it's one of the most watched things on television. August 8th, uh, Richard Nixon gives a speech resigning as president at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time following the Watergate scandal. Uh, NBC, ABC, and CBS all preempted their entire evening schedule to dev devote the night to coverage, uh, and everybody took it live, obviously, but nobody wanted to kind of sully the historical importance of what was going on by then going to, you know, repeats of some sitcom afterwards. Uh, over 110 million people watched the speech on TV. Uh, and to that point, it was the second most watched thing behind the moon landing at Apollo 11. Uh, the Nixon officially leaves office the next day at noon, uh, with Gerald Ford being sworn in. And to date, Nixon's the only president to resign from office. It was a gigantic deal. I mean, it starts uh, obviously starts the whole gate of it all. Everybody and and they said too as well. Basically, if you didn't watch it on TV, it's probably because you were on vacation and you probably listened to it on the radio. So. Something that was a absolute can't miss on August 8th, 1974, President Nixon resigns. Interesting side note to that. You mentioned it being listened to on the radio. Because it was played on the radio, we know that that date is actually the date that the events of the Rocky Horror Picture Show took place because that's heard on the radio as they're <laughs> driving to the castle in the beginning of the movie. That's great. So. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the television round? Oh, man, I really got to one-up the historical value on mine. So let's go uh, August 25th, 1994. I was actually a bit surprised that I found a show that was starting in August before the rest of the fall lineup even began. But this is one of those shows that ABC had like destined to fail right from the start. But unlike NBC did with Freaks and Geeks, where they moved it all over God's creation, it wasn't on the same night. Nobody knew where to find it. This show was just placed on the wrong night. Uh, but there were other reasons for canceling. I'll get into that later. But ABC, they had this show. It debuted on Thursday nights at 8 p.m. This is 1994, where it's competing with juggernauts like Friends, Martin, Mad About You, Living Single. All, those, all these shows are on at the same time. So needless to say, the ratings for this were total shit. But everyone that saw this show absolutely loved it. Uh, anyway, this show, it followed the main character. Her name was Angela Chase, and it followed her through her ups and downs as a teenager in high school. But look, here's the thing. Like growing up for us, like in the, the late 80s, early 90s, most of our coming of age shows were always goofy as fuck. This show was pretty real for a teen drama, and I think what really worked for the show was that it was pretty real. They weren't like hanging out at the max trying to devise a scheme to fake a character's death to meet a pop star, which is actually something that Zach Morris did, by the way. But instead, the show dealt with some real shit, like really demonstrated what kids went through on a daily basis going through high school. So pretty much any like shitty thing that a kid could deal with back then, they lumped into this show. Homophobia, violence, drug use, sex, alcoholism, homelessness, child abuse. They literally jammed everything into 19 episodes. All these things, they seem kind of commonplace now in 2021. You can turn on like Netflix. And I'm sure there's like 80 shows that are exactly the same. But on 1994, this was like a watershed moment for this type of programming. You didn't see this. You saw goofy teen programming. This was like real, you know, or at least as close as they can make it. 
This also launched the careers of Jared Leto and Claire Danes. And Claire Danes at the time, she was only like 14 or 15 when the show was like being produced and whatnot. So before we can ultimately blame ABC for shitting the bed on this one, Claire Danes was possibly more to blame since the show was, it was like very grueling to shoot and the, they were still kids. So they had to go to school as part of the union laws that they had. So her and her parents actually told NBC that if they did a season two, that she wasn't interested in doing it. So that in itself, it kind of caused a rift between fans. It was like a big commotion. And this is kind of where this is a big deal because this had built a, an internet campaign to save the show. This is 1994. Nobody was on the fucking internet. Like now an internet (laughs) campaign, like everybody and their mother, like go to Facebook, Twitter, and they post shit. Nobody was doing this back then. So they started this campaign. It's probably one of the first campaigns to save something. Obviously it didn't work, but I give you the debut of my so-called life on ABC. Huge is almost as big as Watergate, Nixon, all that. It's probably, it's right up there, but that was August 25th, 1994. (laughs) Man, Crush, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cody, Mitch, let's hear your verdict for the television round. It's hard. I mean, that was pretty good. That was pretty good trivia there. It was. It was intense. I, I think. Uh, you want to go? I can't, I'm not going Nixon. I'm not going Nixon. <laughs> I'm, I'm out on Nixon. Sorry. Sorry, bro. We'll be out on Nixon. You feel a man crush too? Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I kind of feel it, man. All right, it's done. It's- Thank Did you guys watch that show growing up? No, but I like Jared Leto. He's great. You know, in <laughs> Rec Room from a Dream, great movie. Yeah, Fire. Yeah, yeah. He was like the uh, same character yeah, all the way through. Fire. Oh, Lord of War. Fire. Yeah, he's, he's a great actor and a musician at the same time. But I'll take those points. Thank you. I know was, I told you it's bigger than Nixon. <laughs> bigger than Watergate. <laughs> All right, man, Crush. You jump out to a three to one lead going into our final two point round. That's the music round. Uh, you have the option. Do you want to start off or do you want to defer? Uh, since I just went, I will defer. Uh, Joe, you have the honor to start this one. Oh, oh, do I? I accidentally just gave myself a second point there. So apologize. There we go. Um, <laughs> I don't apologize. You know what? Screw everybody. No, uh, let, let's talk about August 6, 1974. Uh, basically, if you were born in the summer of 1975, you probably owe it to this album. I uh, give you Barry White's Can't Get Enough. Uh, it was Barry White's third studio album uh, contains obviously his arguably biggest hit, uh, can't get enough of your love, babe. Uh, it also had the single "You're My," <clears throat> "You're My First," "My Last," "My Everything." Uh, both made it to number one on the Billboard R&B charts. Uh, they were one and two respectively on the Billboard, uh, the U.S. Billboard 200. Uh, it was a certified gold. It, the album itself ranked number 281 in Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time in 2003. Uh, so, I mean, a lot to go with there. And it was a really big year for Barry White just in general. He also got two no- Emmy nominations or yeah, two Emmy nominations in the same uh, category. <clears throat> Sorry. He also got two Grammy nominations in the same category, uh, when he wrote songs for the Love Unlimited Orchestra. And he also had a uh, movie that he scored and sa- did the soundtrack for called The Together Brothers. So he was kind of on fire in uh, 74 and it all well you know it all started with this bad boy can't get enough of your love 
Babe. Babe. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love it. Very wide is great. All right, guys. So my music selection this week has actually been credited as the first release from the funk metal genre. And it's an album that kickstarted this band all the way to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I give you the debut album by Red Hot Chili Peppers, titled The Red Hot Chili Peppers, released August 10th, 1984. The big single off the album is the infectious grooves of Get Up and Jump, although True Men Don't Kill Coyotes had a video made for it and actually received some airplay and support from MTV, which helped support the band and expose them to millions and millions of new fans. Now, the album actually failed to chart on the Billboard 200, though. Uh, The major knock on the album is that the band didn't actually sound like a cohesive unit at the time, mainly due to the revolving lineup. Ketis and Flea had said over the years that they actually prefer the demo versions of most of the songs, which were recorded with the original lineup with Halil Slovak and Jack Irons. Uh, A review I found in the Orlando Sentinel by Richard Dettendorf reads, A mix of funk, Tex-Mex rock, and bits of acid rock. It's made palatable by the expert musicianship and tongue-in-cheek lunacy of four musicians. Bassist Flea Blazarni, vocalist Anthony Kiedis, drummer Cliff Martinez, and guitarist Jack Sherman. They live up to the description Red Hot when Kiedis sends machine-gun-like bursts of lyrics through the wires as on the up-tempo get-up-and-jump but you don't want to dance as much as you actually want to jump. The tunes range from deranged jive spells to mocking protests. And then the article actually closes with the quote, uh, the music burns on the way down, but it's worth the pain. I give you the Red Hot Chili Peppers in stores, August 10th, 1984. Okay. California. All right, man crush. Why don't you wrap us up on this game with your music selection? All right, first off, I think this is great because we have a band here. We're finishing up with music, and all three of us came with three different genres, which doesn't always happen. Like, we'll get three of the same shit, but everything's different here. So let's go to August 9th of 1994, one month before the debut, one month before his debut album dropped. We got the lyrical stylings of this legend a month early via the release of his first ever single. And listen, like up to this point in my life, I was like 15, 14, somewhere around there. I predominantly listened to rock, metal, punk, alternative, whatever. But I was never that big in a rap at all, like to this point. Then I heard this guy when I was in high school. I was like a freshman in high school or sophomore in high school. And I don't know if it was because he was East Coast or however you want to categorize him. But I was instantly in on this rapper. And this was the first rap CD that I ever purchased. I still have it in my collection over there. Uh, this singles release, I put this guy on the map. It put his label bad boy on the map. And even like, even the critics loved this song. Every, every review I found in the papers, I didn't find one that said this was a shitty track at all. This is 1994. So obviously this was a huge video on MTV at the time. It was playing constantly. Uh, hit number 27 on the Billboard Hot 100, hit number 14 on the R&B charts, and it absolutely destroyed and hit number one on the Hot Rap Singles chart, obviously. Uh, aside from like being in Rolling Stone's top 500 songs of all time, 
it's also on like a dozen best of lists. So it's like one of those songs. And, and you know what? Maybe it's the dedication of this song that really hit home for me at the beginning of this one. Much like Biggie, when I had teachers in high school that never thought that I would amount to anything. So when I heard this, I was locked in. And you know how it goes. Like, fuck all you hoes. Get a grip, <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah, this album is dedicated to all the teachers that told me I'd never amount to nothing. To all the people that lived above the buildings I was hustling in front of. Called the police while I was trying to make some money to feed my daughter. It's all good. You know what I'm saying? It's all good, baby, baby. And I give you Juicy by Notorious B.I.G. And that was released on August 9th, wow. 1994. Fantastic. Yeah, boom. It's one of my favorite rap albums of all time. It just I love yeah. I love Notorious B.I.G. Me too, man. I used to be a skateboarder, and that was my (laughs) jam when I skated. That whole album. And I jam Biggie Smalls. Yeah. You can listen to that like track. Well, track one was an intro, but you can like I remember listening to the intro like all the time because it was on CD and just going from like one to thirteen. All the way through that freaking yeah. CD, like all the time, so it, good. Yeah, it's fantastic. It just flows. It has a story to it. It's almost like a concept album. It's fantastic. and this is it's a Great it's pick. like one of the best like rags to riches. Yeah, not just raps like just rags to riches stories of any song. It's like it's so good. All right, let's toss it down to the guys from Moon Fever for their final verdict on this game. Baby, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. Man crush all Monday with another win. It was, another it was win. all a dream. All right, man crush, you win this game. Congratulations, man. Pull out another victory. But you can't yeah. really argue with Biggie Smalls, man. No, it was, a, it was a solid year. It was a solid Hell yeah. Year. Hell yeah. Guys, I meant to ask you. I wanted to ask you this at the end of round three when you're bringing up uh, Bruce Springsteen and stuff. Your name, Moon Fever, is that like a nod to Tom Petty at all? Accidentally, I think. I mean, we all knew of Full Moon Fever and stuff. Yeah. But yeah. When we were talking about it, we used to joke about it with each other because we partied all the time <laughs> and we woke up late. And so when we, we were like, oh, it comes and goes, you know, sometimes we get our shit together and write a bunch of songs. Sometimes we just go experience what Hollywood had to offer. And that's when we had a month of moon fever. So. Yeah. Because we were I was like, I'm doing more than we were in yeah, the sun. The sun so. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, dude, your, your logo is bad. I need that t-shirt. Because yeah. your logo is like one of the uh, just, yeah, send us uh, in, uh, just an ear, ear address and uh, oh, we'll fucking the- sweet, sweet man, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll rock that you. shit all the time. That yeah, one of the call. just the way that it's fit, like everything about it is fucking fantastic. So tell us about tomorrow. I mean, this is our show is going to come out next week, so it's already going to be out. So everybody else, you can go watch this already. But tell us, like, what are you guys doing on Twitch? You guys are dropping this new song, new video, and all that stuff. Yeah, we're dropping the new video for our single, single all summer tomorrow on Twitch via Spin Magazine's, I guess, Twitch account, and that'll be at three. Well, I guess it's already out, but three o'clock. Uh, yeah. Go check out our video. There That's you what go. we're trying to say. Yeah, yeah. just do it. When exactly. you're done with this, just yeah. go Google Moon Fever single all summer and check it out because yeah. it's gonna be awesome. You're gonna yeah. love it. All of your videos yeah. are awesome. 
Like, yeah. and this, but this one has a lot this of corn dogs. Pretty, this one's got, this one's pretty funny. This one's pretty we, You know why they're awesome is because we all do them all last minute, <laughs> and, there, and there's and there's no limit to like. It's like yeah. okay, let's try it out. And yeah. Like with Corey yeah, and Wolfie, yeah. they're crazy. Like we're crazy. Yeah. We'll travel all over the place to play music. They'll travel all over the place if they need to bring their camera. So yeah, we're like, let's go to the middle of fucking nowhere with a car <laughs> and almost get shot by gangsters in the desert. But we're gonna get a video. Out but of it. does it look Sweet. great? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so, has that actually happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that happened at the payphone yeah. video. Payphone video. Yeah. We were in jail. We yeah. were out in the middle Palm of nowhere. Desert. Yeah, Palm Desert. Oh, this- dude, I know that area. All right, you got to tell us. Like, so what? What happened? With this very expensive historic car yeah. that we rented. That we were not allowed to drive in the desert. Yeah. By the way. <laughs> Sorry, by the <laughs> way. We're take it around Venice. Yeah. We're just cruising around Venice for a couple of days. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's late at night. It's pitch black. We got all these cameras. It's just us and a couple questionable, questionable drive-bys went by. And yeah, we, where they we would cut the headlights out. and they would. Yeah, it was. It got yeah, a car with his headlights cut off. Right in the old yeah, it was yeah, it was fun. It's beautiful out there. This the video for Sing All Summer we did in a very tiny town, my hometown, in the Bible Belt of Texas, called Amarillo, Texas. And we went to the good old home plate diner. Which great burgers. And great kern dogs. And kern dogs. And uh three plugs. Nice. Yeah, yeah that's what I and uh I met we, my what <laughs> Oh wow, yeah. Wait, what are you saying? You met what? <laughs> what? <laughs> you can't stop. <laughs> like, it's what do you say? You met... met somebody there. Yeah, that was a joke. You gotta watch the video and you'll get all this. These, Sing these all summer. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It's... I mean, dude, all of them are on YouTube, so you guys can go just check out Moon Fever and just watch them all. They're all good. All their, all your songs are roughly like three minutes long too, and they. They just smoke right through. You guys oh, yeah. are like real. When they they first pitched you guys to us, and I listened to, I think the first one that popped up was Cocaine. I was ten seconds into the song, like after the the whole intro part, and I was like sold. I was like, let's do it. You're just like boom. Yeah, I was like, it's fucking great. I was like, let's let's go for it. And I've been listening to that song on my way home from work. It's definitely brings you up after a long shit day of work. Hell yeah, that's great. I'm not going to say you want to do cocaine, but you could live through somebody else doing cocaine. It's a fight, so yeah, it's vicariously it. too. You, <laughs> would, you, yeah. wouldn't, you would be blown away by, by uh, how much people love that to ask us about that after the shows. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, how much cocaine did you do before? <laughs> I've had a biker lady show me some show me some stuff yeah her boobies yeah we yeah. can cuss on here so i can see that yeah, yeah. we can yeah he's like yeah. i love that song cocaine and it had some in there yeah and i was like uh you want to buy a shirt or uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh we got cutoffs so you guys just finished up touring with uh with hinder right or are you still you just finished tell us about that tour like how that went with them Anything crazy? We always talk, ask people. I think you guys are the the. You guys would tell us the stories. I think yeah. if anything crazy <laughs> happened, you would say it because we get we do get a lot of bands that are kind of shy about saying it. I don't know if you guys would be like what. There's what some was, stuff you just can't say. Well, there's a bunch of things. <laughs> I can't say. No, I'm just joking. No, 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 no. Um, well, the shows were all unreal. Like the crowds were amazing. Hinder is so sick. Yeah, those guys are really cool. Yeah, super, super, super cool guys. 
Um, oh, the last night they pranked us. Oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a great story. Fans, you know they they'll prank the openers when they go on tour with them. So it's our last night, and uh, we were waiting for them to see what they were gonna do because we heard they were gonna prank us. But the first thing they did was they took one of Greg's Bractom. He only has two, so they took one of his primary drums. Yep. Just took it off stage. Just walked off stage. Second, second song. Second song. Second song. Well, the and then yeah. then they brought shots. Yeah. So they kept bringing shots every time they took. But they eventually, the last song, they even got, he even grabbed his guitar and cut yeah and cut string and cut my my two my E my A on the my guitar <laughs> while we were playing. While in the middle I, of the set, yeah. I was in the crowd singing and yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought Mitch was getting it, but then we made it out. Oh no, we made it out. I looked at the guy and I said, "Cut the strings. I don't need them." Yeah, <laughs> took all the drums, um, and then we partied in the parking lot till like four a.m. and they trashed the uh, and they trashed our van. We, we had a yeah. uh, we had a uh, condiments war. I woke up the next morning and I it's walked out of the hotel, and there was about I'm gonna be I'm gonna be <laughs> give you an honest estimate here. At about three thousand Taco Bell hot packs, I'm, I'm being dead serious. I am dead ass serious. There was bags of just Taco Bell condiments everywhere. Pretty good. Yeah. Well, they like actually at the Taco Bell by me now. They started charging you to get like more than mm. two. Oh well, I bet what happened was Mitch was like, "Oh, you're gonna charge me? Then I want four bags." I mean, that does sound like something I would do. I'd be like, "Oh yeah, yeah okay, well, give me all the yeah. sauce you have." Back, okay? <laughs> what do you have because left? Me and Hinder are gonna have a hot sauce battle. Let's go. <laughs> Which could get dangerous with hot, especially some of those hot sauces. Well, what do I you... mean, if you would have saw our van, you would have known that they won. <laughs> it's the experience it's the experience going through what do you guys have coming up after this can't say anything definitely check out our new single single summer uh we probably will be touring soon um just keep up to date on our social medias for you know more tour dates more drops and um yeah Moon Sweet, Moon Fever official baby check us out when are you guys coming to the east coast you coming like is there anything sort of scheduled up towards new york i hope same we don't know yet. Right. we don't know I heard anything um I'll, i mean i'll we keep love looking to, to all the people out there hey <laughs> Ready to go. i'll, I'll <laughs> definitely keep looking for that and i don't know like you guys are in a hotel right now we've had like a great streak of like uh brendan from weedis played us teenage dirtbag acoustic uh tom higginson from uh plain white tees just did one a couple weeks back do you guys have a guitar? Can you can you pop out an acoustic uh, jam in here? I don't think we have one here. Yeah, uh, all acapella. I put at John's house. Otherwise, we would have. <laughs> That's all right. I figured. Oh, I, I, there's no shame in asking. No, no, no. If we, hey, if we had one. We, yeah, we had one. Yeah, yeah, we would have done it in a second. Yeah. Because I actually I heard you guys do Fever or no, uh, not Fever. Um, what the hell? What? Yeah, I think it was it. Was it Fever that you did acoustic? I saw it online. Maybe. Maybe. And it, was, <laughs> it was fucking amazing. <laughs> so if you guys can't hear it here, but like go Google that one. It's on YouTube. Uh just look up Moon Fever, Fever Acoustic. It's fucking awesome. I guarantee it. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Dude, I, seriously, your your stuff is great. I can't uh I can't wait till you know everything opens full on. If you guys come out east coast, I definitely want to hit that up. You guys are uh you guys are great. Thanks, yep. we love to we love to do that. The only thing I'm anticipating almost as much as finding out uh, the details on your uncle's history, if we can get that. <laughs> I know. Hold on, hold on. Let me see on your phone. Where's my phone? Oh, my God. <laughs>
Are you texting him right now? You're like, dude, seriously. Hold on. Wait. Are you a spy? All right, hold on. We'll just find out real quick for the people. <laughs> oh, straight to oh. Oh, He's a spy, bro. He's not going to pick up. When you finish sure. recording, you may hang up or press one for more options. Leave the message. Hey, the we one. just wanted to know if you were a spy or not. If you could yeah. let us know that, please get back to your nephew and he'll let us know. Inquiring minds need to know. Yeah, like the whole audience. We're we're really we're all sitting on the edges of our seat. We need to know this. All right. Thank you. So sorry, Uncle Jim. <laughs> uh, well, we tried. We tried. We tried. What can you do? But dude, thanks for coming on. Thanks for giving me the win. I didn't even think 94 had it in it, but it did. It baby, baby. Did. Baby, baby. Baby. Yeah, thanks so much for having us, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Take it easy. Best of luck with everything, and we'll be in touch, guys. Bye. Thanks so much. See ya. Take care, guys. Have a great night. You too. All right, Duelers. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this episode right here. But don't worry. If you'd like a transcript of this episode, please send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Dueling Decades, or you could just look down on the links in the description underneath this episode. You can head on over to DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, basically everywhere podcasts are found. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Be heard.